0: Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 148 of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today on the show, we've got Mark Hawk joining us, and Mark is the CEO and co-founder of Rev Local. They've got an incredible growth story, and Mark has a lot of great insights and perspective on being an entrepreneur and everything it takes to run a successful business. I definitely think you guys are going to enjoy this episode, and as always, we hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that... As always, we've got to give a big shout-out to some of our incredible sponsors here on the show. And we're going to start with a new sponsor, 3rd & Goal. You are invited to pack
1: your bags and join the 3rd & Goal Foundation for Heroes in the Hangar, a suitcase party, Friday, May 3rd, 2019. There'll be live performance by Swag, an open bar, heavy hors d'oeuvres, and interactive stations. And one lucky couple will leave the night on a private jet for an all-inclusive weekend getaway. First class tickets are $150, which includes entry and one raffle entry into trip drawing. VIP first class cabin is $2,000. It includes six first class tickets, access to the VIP pre party, and name on the event signage. Proceeds benefit the Third and Goal Foundation, founded by Brady Quinn, a nonprofit that is committed to making a difference in the lives of veterans in need. For more information and to reserve your tickets, visit www.thirdandgoalfoundation.org. That's www.thirdandgoalfoundation.org, which will also be linked in the show
0: notes. And our next sponsor is Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus. And their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting, positive impact in our community. And Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity To join like-minded businesses to raise money for great causes, participate in large-scale volunteer efforts, and improve educational opportunities for youth in our community. To get your small business involved or to learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is smallbizcares.org. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need including investors, mentors, capital, and talent, through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX.
1: FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to his clients they serve industries ranging from education to property management manufacturing fast casual and more if you want to check out more you can go to go fmx.com
0: all right congress let's get the show on the road you could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and i might get you know my head kicked in
1: I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to
0: not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we've got Mark Hawk joining us, and he is the CEO and co-founder of RevLocal a digital marketing company with a focus on revolutionizing the local digital marketing industry. And since the company's inception in 2010, RevLocal has grown quickly. They were on the Inc. 500's list of fastest growing companies multiple years in a row. They've been named in numerous best places to work lists as well as UpCity's 2018 top agencies lists. And today, RevLocal employs close to 500 people across the US and Canada, working with clients to help build their online presence with a focus on the local marketplace. We're really excited to have Mark on the show today to talk about the company's growth and everything they have going on. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Mark.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: And thanks so much for taking the trip down I'm glad I finally
2: got down here, yeah. Yeah, it's it's quite the trip.
0: I mean, you guys are up there in Granville, right? (laughs) We're
2: in Granville, yeah. We were founded up in, off of Polaris, though. So Mm -hmm. we were Polaris-Westerville roots, but... You know, we, we moved out to Granville five years ago now.
0: Mm. You're still at the same big building, right, we out are. there? That's uh, a It's a nice building, honestly. We out, well, one of the first places we like to start with these, Mark, sorry, I got a little sidetracked. Yeah. Uh, we generally like to start with some of the early career and childhood all the way up through college and other business, uh, other business endeavors sure. uh, before Rev Local, everything that kind of led up to that point.
2: Well, uh, my father is an entrepreneur himself, so... He inbred in all of us five kids. There's four boys and my sister. There's five kids in six years. The, as he used to say, depend on yourself, not someone else. Because someday someone will let you down. So, you know, I grew up in an agriculture background. My dad, when he was in his 20s, uh, convinced a local banker to lend a dairy farmer enough money to reopen a bankrupt grain elevator feed store in little Danville, Ohio, town of a 1,000 people north of Columbus an hour. And he convinced him to do that, and my whole high school, all of my years, and all those kids in college, Dad was able to really grow a business to a nice, healthy business just by, as he said, the school of hard knocks, but trust and advisors that you can lean on to help you get success. So he always said the banker, the accountant, and the attorney is the three-legged stools that makes me have success, and without them, I will probably fail at some point. And so that was always the conversation, and he taught us that through 4-H and growing up raising pigs and cattle and everything else. He always said, I wish I could be a farmer, but I need to have a business in order to f- afford the family life. Uh, so I grew up that way, but growing up, I was a sports nut and got really involved in athletics, and my desire to go off to Notre Dame was all because I wanted to compete academically because I tore out both ACLs and high school football. So I really fell upon, you know, not being able to be who I wanted to be as an athlete. Uh, And that led me off on the journey of going there academically and and falling in love with, you know, I would say competition Mm -hmm. and trying to grow. Uh, So from that, going off to Notre Dame, I ended up uh, coming out, learning how to sell as a book man. So I sold books door to door, 70 hours a week, six days a week, you know, 70 hours you know that whole every single for 12 weeks every single week for 12 weeks and then come home so essentially you're going underwater I used to say go off to another area of the country your buddies are at the beach hanging out with their girlfriends and it's a college summer and you're selling knocking on doors all day every day 8 a.m to 930 p.m to make money and to learn how to sell uh, and I didn't think I ever wanted to be a sales guy I was trying to be an accountant but during that journey, I learned my love to, for selling, and also my love for working with people, being energized by people. So I did that in college. Went ahead and did uh, social work for a year. Did a year of giving back in Oregon, and then I ended up in accounting for basically a year and a half to realize that is not what I wanted to do with my life. And for I t- I've had two careers since. The second one was 10 years in the banking business as a commercial lender, working in Columbus downtown here, and then. Uh, I jumped into business with my brother 15 years ago, uh, two weeks from now, so April 1st, April Fool's Day, 15 years ago, I decided to be an entrepreneur, and (laughs) so we've been at that for the last 15 years, so that's kind of the snapshot of those careers, and there's a lot of different, you know, paths along that journey, but that's what got me to RevLocal. So you seem to
1: know at kind of a young age that, you know, you you enjoyed selling, that might be the path you want to go down, and... Even as a child, you mentioned you know, watching your father be an entrepreneur, maybe that instilled that within you. But you st- still spent 10 years in the commercial banking sector. What made you eventually say, you know, I'm going to make that leap and I'm going I'm to take my next journey?
2: That was a hard decision, one that I agonized over for two years. I loved being a banker. Because as a banker, it's a little bit like what you guys get to do. You get to hear people's story. I got to hear people's story every day and I got to feed their dream. You know, I was selling something that everyone had, money. But the relationship is the differentiator between one banker or another, I felt. And the bank I was working with, Park National Corporation out of Newark, is a community bank. It's a $7 billion bank that's pretty under the radar for most people with 13 banks. Now they're in Charlotte, Florida. They've been all over the place. Um, But I came into that out of accounting because I I enjoyed people and I enjoyed – creating relationships and that's what I got to do as a banker but then once I had those relationships I got to feed and help feed their dreams and also use my knowledge of accounting and finances to really challenge people to make good decisions because I remembered back and I actually went to college to be the banker like my dad had so I connected to that story so deeply I even know the guy's name his name was Joe Mickley because dad used to say if not for Joe I wouldn't have this because the banker believed in me. And so I always wanted to be the guy that got to believe in someone else. And so I went to a professor and said, I want to be a banker. And he said, be an accountant. I'm like, what? I don't want to be a banker. I thought that was finance. And he said, no, bankers can be accountants. I'm sorry, bankers cannot be accountants, but accountants can be bankers all day. And the foundation of business is accounting. you got to understand the number flow. So that's why I got an accounting degree not because I thought I wanted to run the 10 key all day and just be an analyst, which I realized really quickly from the selling and from my dream, I wanted to be a banker. And so I took 18 months of learning public accounting to see what that could teach me and with a, with a vision that someday I wanna be a banker. And I got that chance. And so when I was that, I loved it. And I left it only for the reason that my brother had been knocking on my door and I wasn't sure that I wanted to run down the path of going from small community to small community and leadership. I was a senior VP at 30. They wanted me to think about becoming a president of a small bank in some uh, smaller town, which I grew up in, but my wife and I loved this community. And she said, I want to live in Columbus. She'd been a teacher and a principal in Olentangy schools and said, I want to go home. And so I started looking at that and saying, my wife and my family is more important than my own personal career, and I always had a dream that someday maybe, not for sure, I wasn't one of those guys that said I have to run my own business because I enjoyed the collaboration of the banking world. I enjoyed my colleagues and the mentors I had. Uh, so I really wasn't anxious to get away from it, but for the sake of my family life as well as my brother's growing idea, his business, I decided it was time to jump off after 10 years. and. And that was a tough conversation to have, but one that I've never looked back on.
1: And You mentioned in there, you know, senior VP by 30. What do you think helped separate you from your peers throughout that process? Was it, you know, your work ethic? Was it very long hours? Or just did you have a dedication and a desire to continue to be successful?
2: Well, you know, I, I hate answering questions like that because I think other people could tell you more about me than I could tell me about myself. Um, but what people often said, I, my boss, is the grit from the hometown, from the farm, never mm-hmm. went away. So just like being an athlete, you learn how to grind. And I was that 60, 70 hour a week guy. It was one of the reasons why my wife wanted me to get out of it because I was putting in 70 hours a week and I work on Saturdays, 8 to 2 every Saturday. And she said, your kids are not going to know you. That's what she used to say to me. And I said, well, that's how you succeed in this world and especially in a competitive situation. Mm -hmm. They didn't demand it of me, but it was certainly I was smart enough to understand that's how to succeed. Uh, I think the other element that... Um, I had a great mentor. So, David Troutman is his name. David's the CEO now of Park. And I was blessed, really blessed to have him be the guy who took me and h- hired me. He was a local manager here at the time, but he was really good at challenging me to be coachable and to see my blind spots. One example I like to share with people, I tell my folks about it all the time. You know, one day he came in and po- pulled me into his office. He said, You know what people think about you? He said, well, they think it's your, only about yourself. And i like, really? And he said, yeah, but I know otherwise. But you know why? And I said, no, I don't have any idea. He said, because you come in every day with your head down, walk right by people, get on the phone and start dialing. And he said, that's what I want you to do. But they don't know that you care about them and want them to succeed also. So just start saying hi to everyone you see when you walk in. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm learning as a leader now. Like it's the habits that people see that may not really be who you are, but that's what they start to say about you. So that's why I've learned back from David, you really have to let people give you feedback in order to know what habits you have that are giving people the wrong story. Uh, So that's just one example. I don't know if that answers the question you were asking.
0: It's a really interesting example because it's those little things about your personality and your character that like, you never would have realized, hey, people care if I say hi to them in the morning, but it's those little things that people have to point out and your mentors have to point out to you to make you see them. Yeah. Um, so from that point on, like, let's talk a little bit about you and your brother, right? You're like, hey, we're gonna go do this, this business. Where does the idea come from? Why, why Rev Local? And one of the things that Josh and I always really like to talk about on the show is that entrepreneurs are very like zero to one They just do it and it gets done, but we really like to talk about everything in between zero and one. So what were some of the really early stages and initial conversations you were having to get this idea off the ground?
2: Well, I'll share the context a little bit. The context of this is that my brother Michael is 18 months older than me and we're different. And we knew we were different from a very early age when I was wearing him out and he had to move downstairs and no no longer have bunk beds because I talked too much. He's an introvert, and he's a really introverted uh, analytical type. And so he off, we hung out a lot together in high school because I would introduce him to people. I was social, and I'd get energy from people, and he was not that way. And he learned from me some of that. Guess who talked me into selling books? Michael did. That introverted guy decided when he was in college to learn how to get outside of himself. And so he and I sold books together together. And we had the number one team in the country because he had the great ideas, and I'd go after it. And he knew that. So he just convinced me to go hire my friends, 9 or 10 from Notre Dame and 5 from home. And we had this big team of guys that I was able to get to take with me. So from the time I left college, he started the business. For 10 years, he was doing his own entrepreneur thing, and he tried for 10 years to get me to leave to join him. And I kept saying, you know, I adopted a child right out of, right after I got married, In my early 20s and I had a family quickly Um, and so I really needed to be able to support that and so I really wasn't able to do the hardest part of the entrepreneurial journey that he did which is credit cards and eating rice and spaghetti for five years Um, but Michael was the guy who was a good idea man ten years into my I know it wasn't ten years in so we've been doing Rev Local since 2011 and I got there in 04. So in about 2009, 2010, I started, I was running the business within six months. So I got there within six months, Michael moved his office out and he hasn't been for the last 15 years. He's been working from afar, working on it instead of in it and doesn't like meetings and a lot of that. Um, But essentially I challenged him to come up with a new idea because we were in dial up internet access, having a really great run, but I could see it coming you know, broadband was happening, and we couldn't compete. We couldn't get an opportunity to continue to maintain our revenue. So as it started to shrink a little bit, I challenged him and said, in two years, I'm going to have to lay off some of these great people. We had about 40 employees. And so we need to come up with something new. And so we started collaborating, and he started looking very closely at an exercise to say, what are we the best in the world at? What is our unique resources with this company we first started what did he developed and how could that translate if he flipped a switch overnight what could they do and he always said that the day november 11th 2010 mm-hmm. he came in and said this is what you're doing now and he had this vision of going out to do exactly what we do the businesses are going to struggle to come up with strategy and we needed to figure out what that strategy need to be and deliver it and we had all the knowledge from having been SEO guys, SEM guys, and really building a, a five brands of Internet access across the country, we could do it better than others. We had a leg up. So, so we you had com- a head start.
1: So your competitive advantage was kind of that knowledge, not only on you know the way the underlines of the Internet worked and um, businesses being able to find themselves, but then your ability to deliver that, that knowledge to clientele in a, in a specific way to help them strategize.
2: What we found was unique about us, we had never used those selling skills I'd already talked about a little bit when we were selling books and when we had the ISP we were doing SEO and SEM and had a call center so we had no direct selling and we started testing all of that wasn't really nobody knew what it was no was searching for that local search or local SEO or anything to do with the maps yet so we realized we had to employ those old latent skills and add that to the unique resources we had and that was our magic because Michael and I went out and sold, uh, along with uh, an, another partner of ours, Aaron Boggs, and the three of us went out and sold the first 200 customers. And so that's what we did for a year to validate the idea was go out, share with them what our vision was, what we thought value we could create, and we used those customers to validate for ourselves and also that we should scale this, that we should invest in it. And that was successful.
0: And, and to scale, you guys have really built out a large outside sales team, right? Yeah, so- it's interesting, in today's day and age, you've got a lot of different strategies for sales, right? Some people like sitting in the office, like here at FMX, we, we're inside sales and we're selling constantly on virtual demos and things like that. What do you think the benefits of that outside sales are and how has it helped rev local scale?
2: Yeah, I think that there's, you know, what you're doing here at FMX is the most efficient, probably a smart way, it's it's the, uh, it's it's certainly, you um, most You can get more productivity, more efficiency out of it. It's a lower-cost model. But the challenge that you have in the SMB space that we learn by doing and by failing uh, is that they have trust issues. So it's really hard to pin down the guy who's got many balls in the air or gal who's trying to do everything related to their trade because we're working with location-based businesses. It may be a pizza shop. It may be a restaurant owner. You know, it can be a doctor that doesn't have a big staff. It's, we're not chasing the big enterprise organizations that have a marketing team, that have all the skills in there. So the best way to do that is to meet them face to face. Because when you start talking internet, they start wondering about, is this real? Because when you're on the phone, they don't know if you're calling from India, if you're calling from China or wherever. They start to doubt The pitch they've heard because there's been so much I'll get you to the top of Google I'll do something on Google and a lot of them have been burnt Mm -hmm. and so we have found the greatest success and the greatest return uh, from putting somebody in front of them who lives in their community that they might end up seeing at the grocery store and so it's not just a blitz coming into town these are actually people who then maintain a relationship so we can grow from a few individuals to many individuals in a city like we do in houston with 20 sales reps that have grown out from the middle so
0: all right conquerors we're going to take a quick break here in the show to tell you about a group called columbus gives back if you're looking for a way to get involved in your community but you don't know where and how to start look no further than columbus gives back by partnering with over 150 central ohio nonprofits, columbus gives back makes volunteering fun and easy by offering 30 to 40 volunteer events each month that are free of cost commitment and hassle Sign up for your first event today at columbusgivesback.org. That's columbusgivesback.org. All right, let's get back into the episode.
1: Yeah, what's unfortunate about, you know, the SEO space and the company products is that now the first thing you hear, and I hear it again and again in meetings here at FMX or otherwise, when somebody SEO-related comes up, the first thing that you hear is, but he's a good person, I've worked with him in other companies, he's not going to burn you. Because... There's almost been this kind of like witch doctor thing going on because nobody knows what goes on behind those curtains. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to have a lot of knowledge, and, and Google changes their algorithms and all that kind of stuff. So, But the outside sales for us at Ethmax, I think we'd we'd be more than willing to take that approach if our business model could withstand it and we could handle those costs. So, And our market's pretty well formed in terms of what people are charging for our products. So did you guys get any pushback in the beginning for how much you had to charge to make that business model work?
2: Yeah, you know, we, we had to invest a lot of money in it so we could get to the productivity per person and have the level of adoption from, you know, if you send people out and you're spending too much money on them and they're not getting production or revenue, then obviously the model's broken. So it, it took us a while to get it, I would say, tuned. And it, it's an ongoing thing, for sure. You can continue to add productivity and more tools and more arrows in the quiver for the salesperson. But, yeah, we started out with a too cheap a product, and we've expanded it to really enable them to have control of the sale. It's unique about our services we don't have a contract. So we're providing something that people don't have to lock in on and feel like they're you know, signing away, something that they don't know that they can trust. And we're not selling SEO. So SEO to a lot of people is something that they can't track. And what we're providing it has an element of SEO because SEO really means optimizing, search engine optimization, show up, get it to the top, make it optimized. Well, the only way you know if it's optimized is if you're getting some level of conversion or result, and it's hard to see those results for long periods of time, and that's why it's a hard place to measure, and why we didn't go into it headlong being SEO guys, because that is hard to make any kind of promise. With no contract, they're gone quick. And so our ability to create visualization and trackability of some levels of progress, helps people see that you are doing what you said you're going to do. It does work and it will get better over time. So we've been fortunate to get more and more customers to spend over multiple years because they realize this is fundamental blocking and tackling for business. And some of the SEO stuff people would charge on a whole lot for because they didn't know how much work they'd have to try to do. And they didn't have the level of, I would say repeat business that we've been able to have. So, um, you know, everybody's got a little different model, but ours is more smaller sales, multiple locations. So our salespeople do a lot more transactions than a typical SEO sales guy would.
1: I think that makes a lot of sense. I think probably part of the reason that that stigma is attached to SEO is I think maybe some people have <coughs> dove in hoping for short-term results, not realizing that's a long-term play, and and that's kind of how the situation plays out. You talked about raising funds there as well, though, with your accounting background, um, having already had a revenue source from the internet section what did that fundraise look like for you guys? Were you ever worried about how much to take on or, or what the situation was going to look like?
2: I was, but my brother wasn't. <laughs> That's the truth. Um, we self-funded this for the majority of the time. We took our first true round about four years ago um, and we've taken you know one angel round and one round A, I would call it. Um, and we really haven't used a lot of that capital but it's enabled us to stay aggressive. And to keep pushing for growth because you never know. You know, From my perspective, I'm always the guy who's the accountant banker who's saying, be careful, don't get caught short. When you're needing money, you can't get it. And that's a business principle that I tell to people all the time. Companies that get in trouble or grow their way out of business aren't monitoring cash 12, 18 months out. Um, so early on, it was call Michael the investor who had a previous success, and that enabled us to get it to a certain size before we started taking any capital so that we didn't dilute ourselves so we could hold on to a large majority of it, which were 80% still. So that's an important part for us long-term to not give away too much because, as we all know, equity is quite expensive.
1: Did that help balance the push that most investment fundraisers come with from the investors to grow fast, fast, fast? I mean, you guys have grown fast already, did that come from you know, that side or did it come naturally and ha- did you experience any pains from that growth?
2: Uh, we experienced a lot of pains from the growth, but we one of the reasons why we didn't want to take outside money is the expectations or the, I would say, the change in your culture that can have if you, on the big money. Um, and certainly when you're in the venture, full venture, when you're betting from the very beginning, if we'd have bet with somebody else's money from the very beginning, they might not have had as much patience as we did with ourselves. Um, because we certainly had to reprove, prove and reprove and iterate, and that's where you really can get sideways just depending upon how much patience they have in the venture deals that I talk to people about a lot, and it's why we try to avoid it. But the money we've taken has never pushed us harder than we would go, and because we picked the right partners um, that have a level of understanding of who we are and what we're trying to accomplish. So I think the uh, one of the most important things that I would say is if you're gonna be effective in a high growth business, you have to be hard on yourself, even more so than other people are. And one of the questions I ask myself all the time, if there was a new CEO tomorrow, what would they do? If they walked in here and said, you're out, I'm in, what's the first thing they would do? And so I challenge my team all the time to say, if you were in my chair, what would you do? What am I missing? What are we missing strategically? Because it's so easy to get in the whirlwind of thinking What you're doing is the right answer if it's working when, in fact, there may be something that works 10% better that you're not doing. It would have to cause you to stop doing something that was working at a lesser degree. So that's one of the things that we try to challenge ourselves with, and that's the benefit of having taken some outside money is it's not just us. So they are asking tough questions, and we're having to be accountable. And so we have a good board of advisors and managers that really have given us some good support that way to keep pushing us, to not let us get – complacent what
0: about you mentioned culture as part of that and josh and i and the, the team here we have like a sas roundtable where we have a bunch of software companies get together and talk and culture is always one of the things that comes up right it's constantly at the top of everybody's mind but in a high growth environment it's tough to maintain the same culture as it is when you're 10 20 people did you see any of that as you were growing and how did you influence your leaders to make sure that as you spread out across U.S. and Canada, that those teams in California are working the same as those teams in Ohio?
2: If I compare ourselves to other folks, I would say the thing that we do that others don't do is we're willing to invest in it. Because I think some people underestimate the power of building a culture, the communication that it takes, the outreach that it has to be, the, the way you structure communication among them for example how often do you talk to them how often do they talk to one another how often do we bring them in how often do we go to them and so we have a cadence for all of that that really helps keep people connected um, and really also fostering that so you know we invest a lot of money in that we did from the beginning even when we didn't have it it was a check out of the you know savings account to try to say yes we're going to take people on a trip we're going to get salespeople excited. We're going to get them to know each other. So we've had, you know, our number one sales guy this year has been with us for six years. And it's his third time being number one. And somebody else has been number one twice in six years. So some of those, they all know each other. They're all challenging each other, supporting each other. One's in Atlanta. He's in Nashville. We have others in L.A., Houston, everywhere. Their friendships, their communication is real, and we spend money on that. When it comes time for an annual meeting, we're flying – a majority of them in as long as they're committed 80 percent of them 90 percent of them come and so that's a big investment it felt really big this year <laughs> and now we're heading you know off with of the president's club to dublin ireland for the first time so continuing to say what's next to get people excited about we're doing something bigger than ourselves i'm not just a remote sales guy and i'm not just a kid out of college working in the strategist i'm helping somebody else succeed I'm helping fulfill the promises of a salesperson. So I think there's a lot of intentionality and a lot of rallying behind that, both in the way we do our internal marketing. Our, you see stuff on our blogs and our Facebooks and stuff. There's a lot of really, I think, effective things that we've figured out over time that often come from listening to them. What do they need? What do they need to get you excited? You know? And so you know, we invest in a lot of those things. We have three videographers on staff And I just came from a meeting today where they just played a video from our annual meeting to remind everybody of what we did six weeks ago, you know, and what that meant and felt like. And now here's where you can look at it anytime you need. And here's all the video content edited, professionalized, so you can get fired up about what our mission and our vision is, which is, you know, do something worthwhile with people you care about and something noble help a business owner succeed
1: such a clever idea and approach because I think you know the experience here at FMX constantly being pushing forward and looking towards that next goal, you know our team is always aligned around that and kind of builds naturally into this philosophy that you kind of got to forget what happened yesterday because it's, you know it doesn't build what's going to happen tomorrow. But then at the same time, you know the caveat that comes with that is you forget the cultural aspects and, and the accomplishments. And you downplay them a little bit as time goes on. So to be reminded of that constantly over time is um, a really clever approach. You know, out of all the sales people I've ever met from RevLocal, though, it's interesting that they always kind of share similar personality traits. Um, their sales skills are always exceptional. Like, you sit down with them, and you're always like, wow, you've been trained really well, mm-hmm. and they have the similar skills. So what does that look like? Is that start at the hiring process for you guys, the training process, or how does it go?
2: It's both. You know, you can't take a duck to Eagle School, so you really have to be careful. You know, that's a book, by the way. It's not something that's my cute phrase, but... Right. Um,
1: so I like the quote.
2: Qual- I, I, really like I was hoping
1: that
0: was just off the top <laughs> right, of my head. Can't take a duck to Eagle School. I really like that.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it's true. I mean, the reality of it is, you have to be disciplined about who you choose, how you choose them, and, and how you help them find another place if you pick the wrong one. You know, Jack Welsh always said that no matter what screening process or how skilled you get, you're never going to be more than 75% accurate on your hiring. And so, part of this is not just picking them, but being willing to say this wasn't a fit and encouraging them to be honest with themselves about was this a fit. And so I think we're very disciplined about that and we certainly are not afraid to bring people in and allow them to go somewhere else and support them and root for them and they're not a bad person because this wasn't a good place. They're not a duck, necessarily. It may not just be the right fit. And so I think we're, we've been effective at that but I think it's also a, a passion for training to say that there are things you can learn. And when you're picking people, it's not just their skill set, it is often their attitude. I'll hire for attitude and teach you the rest. And so if you have people who are coachable, and you have the greatest athlete in the world, and if you won't listen to the coach, it kills the rest of the team. It's cancer, you gotta let him go. And so that can happen even in business. And I think sometimes because of a desire for results, culture beats strategy every day of the week. It'll eat it for lunch. And so culture is about team, How do you add to it? Do you got the right people and the right seat on the bus all the time? And are you willing to move the seats? You know, if the guy's a quarterback, don't have him playing guard. And if you accidentally stuck him at guard because he looked big and he's actually a better quarterback, then let him switch. And we've done a lot of that. And I think a lot of companies struggle with that because they're they're friends or they had, it was their idea and they don't want to let go of that pride of decision-making and Make a shift. So, those are some of the elements that I think about when we're trying to lead to success with them.
1: Yeah, the athlete analogy is interesting to me because, you know, I think, and I talked about it a little, little bit on the previous episode, some people find it hard to take the passion and drive they had within athletics or another endeavor in their life and then translate into the new endeavor, whether it be business or whatever else. So, when you sit down with somebody, um, and then one additional thing, like some people can work hard for a day, a week, or a month, but when it comes to a year or two years, it becomes difficult. So when you sit down in an interview for an hour with somebody and you're trying to identify, do they have the right attitude? Um, I know as being new to hiring people, it's extremely difficult for me. So what questions and how do you identify that?
2: Well, wow. you know, I think it's, uh, you get right sometimes and you're wrong sometimes. You know, some of the people you think weren't going to be good are good and vice versa, so I don't want to sound like an expert. The thing that I look for and the questions I'm looking for is, do they have a competitive fire? Do they have a desire to be successful? And do they have any desire, specific desires for what we do? Because I think a lot of people want to be competitive for the for the sake of winning. You know, I'm looking for: do they just love to win, or do they hate losing? I want the the person who hates to lose, because they'll hate losing at wrestling, checkers, selling, mm-hmm. you name it. No matter what they do, versus the guy who likes to win. Sometimes he just wants the trophy, the BMOC, be the big man on campus, Mm -hmm. the credit, and that wanes. And once you get it, then you lose your motivation. Like you got what you wanted, and now you don't really care about if you're a mess somewhere else in your life. So I'm looking to find out what makes them, what's made their success and how they think about that. Um, And I think the questions around that are certainly real-life examples not just theories and concepts because we all heard them in business school or college Mm. or the sport we played the question is you know what are the examples of how they learned about themselves and what makes them tick
0: i think that's a good place and i I really like that analogy and hating losing i've never heard someone describe the difference between loving winning and hating losing quite like that but you're right there is a subtle difference there of if i hate losing no matter what position i'm in i'm always going to be driving but if i'm if I'm like, hey, I'm, I want, I'm happy, you might kind of take that foot off the gas a little bit. So it's definitely an interesting concept. What are RevLocal's goals for the next three to five years? Where do you see your team going? What are your own goals personally?
2: Well, i like to suggest that, you know, we have clear financial goals, and we, we tend to look at it in, in 12-month sprints, you know, growing 25 to 30% every year is how we look at it no matter how big we are, which gets to be a harder number the bigger you get. Um, We believe that we are in a marketplace, that we are only scratching the surface. So there is no limit to how far we can push it, meaning there are 27 million businesses and we have a few thousand of them. We're not even a blip on the radar of dominating the marketplace we're in because it's so huge. Most folks are in a niche. We're in all of them. And so we see ourselves continuing to push you know, to have that growth, to take advantage of the opportunity. I look at my job as being a stewardship of opportunity. Am I a good steward? Am I a good steward to individual people as well as to the opportunity that's sitting in front of us? Because there may never be another time in my career, and we tell our folks this, you may never be in a marketplace that has this much opportunity with this kind of momentum and this kind of people around you, so don't miss it. And I think there are people who go their whole career... With not having the excitement and the opportunity that we see in our marketplace so you know i'm not really motivated by a financial number i'm not motivated by the size of my bank account i'm motivated by being uh, a faithful person faithful to my god and my christian faith but also faithful to what i promise people if i'm here to help you be successful become a better version of, your, of yourself am i becoming better why well, i challenge you to become better then i'm succeeding and if we're doing it for 800 instead of four or 500, going it for thousand, all the better. But I want to make sure that the people who are going along with me that agree with that, believe what we believe. We're big fans of Simon Sinek's. Start with why, and so I really start there, because if if it's, it's really not the lag measure of the result, it's the lead measures. Are we making a difference for our clients? Are we making a difference for our people? And are we becoming better? along the way then it's worth it otherwise you get to the end of it you got this big successful business and there's carnage along the way people that aren't changed or people that have bad habits or ruining marriages and a mess because you work them too hard or you don't give them balance or you don't teach them how to be good people then i think i'm a failure and so that's how i think about this it's i don't get as caught up in those goals but i think if we do the right things all the success will happen. So I'm a goal-oriented person, but I don't get focused on that because I'm more worried about losing than I am winning. I'm more worried about am I going to fail to do what I said I was going to do. So I don't know if that made sense or not, but that's how I think about it.
1: It made a tremendous amount of sense to me. I think you know what, what makes me now even more confident about the future of Rev Local than I was even before you walked in is the fact that I think I've been fortunate to experience that same um, fall in love with the journey and don't don't focus on the milestones along the way, through athletics and it was the most productive and greatest period of growth of my entire life. And as I look back and try to find that in my professional career, you know I've, I've had stumbling stumbling stones, but I'm slowly starting to find my way onto the right path. And as I'm starting to enjoy the journey again, I'm experiencing more success than I ever have, and I'm not even focused on that at all. It's just <clears> accompanying it. Um, I'm curious though. And it might not be something you ever think about, but someone like yourself who thinks at a deep level and really cares about the path along the way, when you look back and you think about, you know, when your life is, is over, what do you hope that people, whether it's business, professionally, personally, look back and say about you?
2: Oh, I think about that a lot. I do. Um, you know, I lost my mom 18 months ago to ALS, and I remember all the, all the lessons she said about what life would be like. And for me, I'm only 50. Not yet. I keep saying that. Everybody says, you're not 50. You're 49. Um, but I'm at getting to that halfway point. Um, and, you know, what I think about is, was he a faithful guy that made people better? Or did he only care about his own success? I want to answer. I want people to answer that the way that I want them to because I'm not, you know, success is a lag measure. Success is the result. It's not the goal. And I think people get it backwards. If you do it the right way, if you embrace the grind, the journey, what it's doing for you, and you get excited about the challenge to overcome the next problem, overcome the next scale issue in our business, like I'm leading a business I've never led before. It's that much bigger than it was last year. If it's 10 million more, then all right, it's now a company that never was. What's the new problem? What can I overcome? And can I bring people along with me that can help me? Or is this just me? trying to build a fiefdom for myself it's not that and I hope that people don't interpret it that way or perceive it that way so I want to be very intentional about how I approach it so that people are learning and growing right along with me and it's not about my role being better than theirs I just happen to be lucky to have a parent like I had have a mom and dad like I had to have an opportunity like I've had so I better step into that role and take it even if there are days I don't want to have to take it And so that's how I look at it. And I think at the end of the day, I think we're called to be faithful, not successful.
1: And I think, you know, one more question on that. You know, I I feel similar in the sense that when I I think about this question fairly often too, and I think I feel a little bit similar to the answer you said, but I often feel like I go through days and I I sit back and I think I failed that day. And it can be kind of downing to think that. Do you ever have days where you feel Mm -hmm. like you didn't reach the potential that you wanted?
2: Oh, absolutely, because it's easy to get, off on something that wasn't the most important thing you could have done, the urgent but not important stuff gets in the way. Uh, absolutely. And I think that those are the days where you refocus and rego, reset. So I think looking for opportunities to reset and setting a cadence within your life that also includes others gives you that reset. For example, I learned a long time ago, a long time ago, a few years ago, making sure we sat down regardless of what the busyness was. I've seen companies lose that cadence of accountability and cadence of communication because I got important stuff going on, which really means I got a lot of work to do when in fact the real work is, are you focused on the right stuff? Are you resetting and moving forward on the right things rather than just getting into getting it done? And I think it's challenging for all of us that are winners, that look at ourselves as achievers, that we can get more worried about the getting stuff done and not as intentional about our time and our effort. And I think other people can help with that sometimes and challenge us to rethink that. So to me, trying to create a world where you've got mirrors all around you and those mirrors are your colleagues, you know, level five leadership is having the ability to create other leaders. And so to me, that's my biggest job and that's my biggest way to combat that is to have somebody say to me, why are you working on that? Or why aren't we doing this? And then, yeah, you're right. And having the humility to say, you know what? You're right. We've got to refocus this or we need to sit down and debate this and figure out if we're doing the right thing. So I think if you stay in your own world, it happens more than if you get outside of it and it can get you re-energized because other people can validate you or remote help you reset.
0: And Mark, I think that's a good place to pivot towards one of our last questions of the show. It's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. And if that's telling you too much about why we chose that phrase. I can see you're already smiling about it. But uh, what do you think of when you hear Live Uncomfortably, and how does it apply to your life and career? I
2: think of that book, The Guy Goggins. What's that guy's name? David the Goggins. Seal? It's funny. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure maybe
0: Josh had some influence there from David Goggins <laughs> <laughs> when we first thought of it. Yeah, yeah is, you is that where you
2: got that from, or is that what you guys learned from your wrestling?
1: Oh, I think it probably was a mix of just all the different elements that have gone in, into our life, but I do. I'm a big David Goggins fan.
2: I'm, I'm blown away and fascinated by how... When I try to act like I'm being uncomfortable, I'm not, compared to what he does. Um, He's got a
0: hole in his heart, and he ran like 100 miles on a track. I mean, I don't know if anybody could be as uncomfortable as David Goggins.
2: I ran 100 miles with a broken foot. Right, yeah. yeah like a, you know, you know, a living uncomfortable, I think it is, it is absolutely so important, because the, the default that I think we all have as human beings is for comfort. You know, we're all looking for entertainment. It's one of the weaknesses in our culture right now that and I would say in the younger generation, they're so used to being you know, fed by the device and the, all of the things that they don't want to get uncomfortable. So I have five kids, so I see this, you know, and I say to myself as well. Um, but I do believe there are times where you, know, you have to allow yourself to smell the roses in order to go on another sprint, just like we do in sports. Um, but I think it's really important, much like I was talking about, just having people around you where you challenge each other to get uncomfortable and to break through levels of complacency so one of the reasons why i think urban meyer was such an incredible coach and why saban is and other great guys is because they have an unbelievable commitment to a sense of urgency they're urgent about everything urban always came across that way i don't know him personally but in and watching what he does like he's urgent like let's go let's go let's go and I think that is a level of pushing yourself out of a comfort zone. Of it's okay, just chill. And I don't. And I think there's an element of balance there. So in the leadership side, but personally, I think it's very important to constantly challenge yourself to say, what's my weakness, and how do I get to the point where, you know, I'm producing the best version of myself um, and becoming better. And you have to have discomfort because I always you put a circle on the board comfort zones in the middle mm-hmm. get out of it a little bit to the stress is the stretch zone and then stress mm-hmm. so comfort stretch stress so you can't go so far all the time where you're always stressed out because then you become ineffective but get in the stretch zone because no growth happens unless you're stretching and failing because that's what stretching often means is you might fail and I think people stay comfortable because I don't want to fail they don't want the emotion of it. So that's how I picture it is let me push people outside of comfort zone, push myself outside of comfort zone to be an example, and then and then hopefully not push them too far where you break their spirit like you do with the kid or something. So.
0: Yeah. Mark, that's a great answer, and we really appreciate you taking the time to tell your story and the story of Rev Local here on our show.
2: Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, and Conquerors, thanks for tuning in. That was Mark Hawk over at Rev Local. He's the CEO and co-founder. Hope you guys really enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you liked it, leave us a like on Facebook, share it with your friends, give us a rating on iTunes. Again, really appreciate your support. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like, share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And we're going to start with a new sponsor, Third Goal.
1: You are invited to pack your bags and join the Third Goal Foundation for Heroes in the Hangar, a suitcase party, Friday, May 3rd, 2019. There'll be live performance by swag, an open bar, heavy hors d'oeuvres, and interactive stations, and one lucky couple will leave the night on a private jet for an all-inclusive weekend getaway. First-class tickets are $150, which includes entry and one raffle entry into trip drawing, VIP First Class Cabin is $2,000. It includes six first class tickets, access to the VIP pre party, and name on the event signage. Proceeds benefit the Third and Goal Foundation, founded by Brady Quinn, a nonprofit that is committed to making a difference in the lives of veterans in need. For more information and to reserve your tickets, visit www.thirdandgoalfoundation.org. That's www.thirdandgoalfoundation.org, which will also be linked in the show notes.
0: And our next sponsor is Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus. And their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. And Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to join like-minded businesses to raise money for great causes, participate in large-scale volunteer efforts, and improve educational opportunities for youth in our community. To get your small business involved or to learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is smallbizcares.org. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent, through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.com. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX
1: is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com.
0: You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll
2: find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge.
1: Like